Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. I hope to begin this morning a series of supper sermons on the book of Hebrews, from the book of Hebrews. We're going to have an introductory sermon at this time, and over the course of the months and the year to come, maybe years to come, reflect upon our communion with God in Jesus through that word that God has spoken at our supper times, but always. In the interest of time, I'm only going to read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Perhaps you as individuals and families can read the rest of the chapter in your family devotions today and reflect upon what God will speak in the preaching of the gospel of this chapter. In the first verses, even one and a half of them will be the theme or the, the verses that we'll focus on as we speak of God's word. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, whom also he made the worlds, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Thus far we read the word of God. And on this we would focus, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. It might be apparent to you as you think upon this beginning of this book of Hebrews that there are parallels here, amazing parallels between this book and especially two other books in the Bible and their beginnings. I'm thinking of the fact that Hebrews 1, which speaks of God first of all, and by his word creating all things and then saving a church also reflects the truth of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there's the history in Genesis, the very beginnings of God's dealing with men, even fallen men, and then saving them. But then, perhaps you noticed the parallel between Hebrews and John 1. In the beginning was the word, John 1 says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And then it goes on to say that by this word, God created all things, and without him was not anything made that was made. You have a a parallel here. You also have a summary of basically everything that God has ever said in the gospel of the wonderful work of God and the word of God through his Son, In such a way, in this introduction to Hebrews, that it has led one theologian, at least, to say that if he had no other book in the New Testament than this, this would be enough for him. So if he just had the Old Testament and then Hebrews, uh, this would be enough for him, because this theologian recognizes, we ought to, that there is the sum and substance of everything that God has ever said in the whole Bible, in Hebrews chapter 1, even in these first four verses that summarize all that God's going to say in the rest of the book of Hebrews. One has even said that the marvel of this passage and the sevenfold encomium, or word of praise, that's here, all these things that are said about Jesus and his greatness, uh, is like a shot to the moon. The Hebraist or the, the Hebrew writer here, whoever he is, it's not Paul, maybe, it's maybe somebody else, it's certainly an inspired writer, has really launched from heaven to earth to, to bring back all that's above of God who's above, who's come to be with us here below. It's a great and startling shot of things or uh, amazing words of things that God has done so gloriously and spoken so gloriously in Jesus. Well, beloved, I would say that in all of those things of, with regard to the parallels between Genesis and John and Hebrews and the fact that this is like a moon shot, it just takes us up and high and gives us to see the glorious things that God has spoken and done. But we're going to go beyond the the moon, and we need to because the focus is on the sun. I know sun, S-O-N, but it's on something brighter than the moon that reflects light. It's on the source of light, sun, beyond the moon, And beyond 96,000 or a million miles away is this wonderful truth that's so high and so bright. You can hardly imagine that we could know anything of it. In fact, if it weren't revealed in the Bible and given to us to know by faith, it'd be too bright for us. That's why many have stumbled over this word those who have not been given faith and they just can't see the brightness here. They can't see the uniqueness of this God and his word as we are given to see. So we want to speak briefly in anticipation of the visible word, which is the supper, of God who has spoken in these last times. The God and the word of last days. You see, there's theology here. God is first. Christology, 
Christ is right there with God. In eschatology, God speaks in the last days to us. That's the things of the end of time. In fact, there's all of the loci of dogmatics here. There's all the truth. It's so amazing, this word. And I want to bring it to you. And first of all, to remind ourselves that God spoke different words in time past, and then we're going to go through the text. And we spoke, it has spoken in these last days by one word, his son word. But then something that's implied and to which this text is leading, we need to believe this word. The ones to whom the author wrote were in danger of not holding forth this word truly and holding it close to them with their heart. And so he writes to us that we take this to heart. In these last days, too, when many say, we don't need this word, we don't believe this word. So where are you, beloved? In a position now to believe, you're ready to believe and to have your faith worked. God has always been the God of the word, a God of speech. That's the common thread here. There's a contrast between how God spoke in times past to the prophets and now how God speaks in these last days by his son. But the common thing, the thread that joins the two eras of last or first days and last is that God speaks. He's always speaking. And the contrast here is not between God speaking different word in the Old Testament and then an absolutely new word in the new, but that he's simply speaking and has spoken in different ways, different modes of communication in the Old Testament, but it's one word that he's speaking, as we shall see. Now, we know that God, he spoke this world into existence. He did. Uh, Amazing. God said, let there be light. Let there be this formation out of the chaos of of a a habitable world. And God spoke really man into existence when he took him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life or or the, the word of life. And God spoke aardvarks into existence and ants and atoms and everything of this created world. He's the God of creative speech. At the same time, he's the God of speech. All his speaking is revelatory, meaning it says something, does his speaking of God. So the heavens above and even the earth beneath declare something of the God who made them by his speech. They declare that God is God. They declare his glory, his brightness, his greatness, that he is God and above the creation. God speaks, and everyone knows, therefore, that there is a God, as Romans 1 tells us, and that he is to be obeyed and feared and adored as God. Everyone knows that because that's how God made human beings, to be those who obey the moral commandment, who have impressed upon their consciousness an imperative, an ought, not like the ants and the aardvarks and the atoms who are not rational and moral, who simply obey 
the laws of nature, as we say, the God's law. For them, the fish swims because God says swim, and God gives them this law, and the stars, they move around, and because God says there shall be an orbit or there shall be this or that that propels you from, from this area to another and causes you to shine. But <coughs> the word of creation and also the word of government and providence that is brought up in the text, that God upholds all things by the word of his power, That's not the word here that's being spoken of in Hebrews, the word of God creating all things and then sustaining all things in providence. It's the word to the fathers, you note that? And then it's the word to us, God who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So it's not just a creative word here that God is speaking, or a revelatory word to all people, but it is a covenantal word. It's the word that links the text, uh, Old and New Testament, uh, with itself and with the rest of the Bible. God made the worlds, sustained the worlds, But he was doing this by his son so that there would be something greater than worlds made. There would be a people made by his word and loved him. This was the case even before Adam fell, Adam and Eve fell. God had spoken the word to them, children, and he was saying, I love you and I'm your God and you're my people. And they enjoyed walking and talking with God in the cool of the day, as we read, was their want, apparently, in sinless paradise. There was communication between God and people, and there was fellowship. And so Adam was created this covenantal being, as the Bible says and later articulates, When God reveals his covenant to Abraham, I will be your God, you will be, and your children will be my people, and then to Israel. But the covenantal word to the fathers, and we can include in that Adam, and then Noah, and then Abraham, and in specific, that's what it's referring to here, the Hebrew fathers. But it's all about God this personal God of voice, in distinction from idols who have mouths, they look like they have mouths, they look like they're living, but they can't talk. This God of the Bible and of creation is a God who speaks. And he says, I love you and I draw you to myself. You have no life apart from me. And Man does not live by bread alone and stuff of the earth. And you may get your jollies by some of the things of the earth, but you have no joy except I speak to you that you're mine. And that your soul finds its existence and significance in the living God. Amazing. 
And God was always speaking this word. This was always his intention. And creation is but the fulfillment of the counsel that God would save a people by Jesus and for Jesus. God made the worlds after all. And that there might be this Jesus who comes. And and therefore we, we are given to know from the whole of the Bible that God had as his intention to save and to covenant with Adam and Eve, even in the way of a deep fall into sin, into the, in the way of a devil speaking a word, denying the word of God, yea, hath God said. And then in God speaking to affirm, yes, I've said. And now I will say this, As there's progress in what he says, I love you in spite of yourself. I love you to come to you, Adam and Eve, and to erase from your loins, to reveal by my word, I'm the God of grace. Now, that's kind of a summary of what's going on here. There is an assumption here that people who read know that God is the God who speaks. You know God is the God who speaks, who loves, who says, come into my life, be my friend, and who actually makes his friends. It's a creative word in our heart. And when God said at the first, this is his first word to man that's recorded anyway, where are you? The man fumbles and hides behind the bushes and his own fig leaves. God relentlessly pursues in a conversation of irresistible grace and restores Adam. So this is what's behind this text which draws a comparison between how God spoke, and and now that he's spoken in his son. But there's a similarity that has to be remembered. It's this speaking God who's being remembered here. And when the text speaks of God speaking in various ways to prophets and even to Moses and all the revelators of the scripture who can be called prophets because that's what They were doing when they revealed truth. They were being prophetic. God is saying the old way was a good way and it still is a good way. Not belittling the Old Testament speech of God. He's simply wanting us to see that, that though that's important and God was speaking that way, yet I have an incomparable way to remind you of There's this word, son, son, word that God has spoken, and that's the thing you want to focus on. So in the Old Testament, we're told here, it was uh, a true way that God spoke and really revealed himself to Moses, and then you go to Isaiah and all the prophets, none of them minor, really all of them major, though they be smaller, because of the word they spoke. 
the covenantal word to the fathers. But they spoke, after all, in different ways than God has spoken now, various times, various ways. They, and the idea is that they spoke, but only in part of the truth, like fragments of it. You could even say that the greatest of the prophets, that is, the highest of the prophets who spoke, like in Isaiah, you think of Isaiah 53, they were only, as it were, speaking a couple of sentences or even syllables of the truth compared to how God has spoken now. God spoke different ways there, which were indirect and incomplete compared to him speaking in the flesh. So he spoke, for example, to Adam and to Eve and to our father, Adam and Eve, when a question. And then his first words of promise were to a snake. That is, they were directed to a snake. And God saying, I'm going to put enmity between you, devil, and between the woman and between your seed and, and her seed. Now that's obscure, isn't it? That's something not so nearly clearly revealed as when God says, I'm your God in Jesus. Speaking to a snake and asking Adam a question as if God is revealed as the God who has questions. He doesn't know everything in the Old Testament. <coughs> and of course, he knew where Adam was. He was just seeking to discover from Adam that he himself would find where he was spiritually. So Adam, or, or God, spoke through the prophet Moses in the revelation of Exodus in a burning bush. What was that? How can that reveal anything clearly of God and, and of salvation? We only know the significance of that burning bush, which was burning but not consumed in the light of the New Testament that sheds light on the gospel of God with the people in the furnace of Egypt. God with the people in the furnace of Egypt so that they're not consumed. And God's mercies so that we're not consumed. And God spoke through or to an Elijah with a still small voice of the Spirit. God spoke to Abraham before that Men on the plains of Mamre, representatives of the triune God. God speaks through the prophet Amos in a basket of summer fruit. What kind of a word is that? And God speaks of this suffering servant in the servant passages of Isaiah and of a lamb and, and of a seeing the success of his children who are given to believe in his sacrifice. What's it all about? In these last days, God tells us. God tells us. In the clear, full word of the gospel, 
That's what our text is all about. And what Hebrews is all about. God speaks, and John himself says, remember that other book of beginnings, that the Son is the only one who articulates God. The only begotten of the Father, he declares him. No one else can understand and reveal God. Prophets can't, and the types and ceremonies of the prophets cannot. Nearly so, clearly so, fully so, as God with us in Bethlehem and on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and in the temple at Jerusalem and on the cross. The Son is the speech of God, not just in what he says, but in what he is. This is the difference between Jesus and Isaiah, Jesus in Hosea, Jesus in Moses. He's not only something about the truth of God, he is the truth of God. He not only has something to say of the truth of God, but he is the Word of God. That's his name. The Word of God with with God in the beginning and before it. Amazing. So is revealed in Jesus in these last days, inaugurated by his death and resurrection, his full revelation of all that God is. And I say that unashamedly and yet very humbly, of all that God is. That's what Jesus is the speech of. So the truth that God is God revealed in him. So the truth that God is wise revealed in Jesus, that God is powerful revealed in Jesus' power, that God is love, that God is righteousness, that God is the God of infinite worth. And he's the God of eternity and of the great salvation. Hebrews 2 reminds us that that is what this book is all about warning us, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed of us by those who heard him. The covenantal God reveals something not merely theologically of himself and Jesus, that he's God with us this way, but also soteriologically, meaning God reveals himself in Jesus to save us. That's what soteriology is about. (coughs) To create in us and to make a way for us in this world and then to create in us a new heart to attach us to the things of God. What a difference. That's what the writer says here. God spoke in different ways, in dreams and 
visions and types and shadows and through 40 or so different authors and 39 different books and over 1,500 years in the Old Testament way, but now in the fullness of time in this one way, this one speech. And you got to hear that. And that's leads us to reflect upon these things here for our application. There's something so wonderful here that we can see, beloved, that not many are given to see. And we can hear, but not many are given to hear. That God speaks. He's spoken time past, one word, to the fathers by prophets, now in last days by one word. Not many people can hear that. <clears throat> the writer to the Hebrews anticipates this unhearingness among the people to whom he writes. And the rest of chapter 1 that we didn't read is... <clears throat> The comparison made between this wonderful word, who is God with us, the brightness of the glory of God. I I don't even have time to get into this description. That'll be another sermon. But the writer is comparing Jesus to the highest of creatures, maybe, the angels. And the rest of the chapter is about that. So it seems that the people there were maybe want to do this or tempted to do this. See as intermediators, intermediaries between God and us, angels. But then Jesus is contrasted with those angels as the creator of the angels, as higher than the angels, as the one who is the heir of the worlds and the angels are not and of these angels who are only ministering spirits to the saints of God, not their saviors, as some people think. Later on in Hebrews, it'll be about contrasting, comparing Jesus Christ with Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and by implication with any other of the Old Testament And in these last days, beloved, we need to know that this word that God has spoken to us is the only word, even when there's a lot of smart people who think we are now enlightened and we don't need the word. See, last days speaks of a great thing, God has spoken by his word. But even as at the first days there was the snake deceiving Eve and then Adam with his word, which is the anti-word, God's not really true. Not really enough for you. I have another word. You shall be as God's. Even as that's the case, that in the first days there was this conflict, so in the last days, and should we say even more today, 
There's all kinds of words that would take us away from hearing this. Or as Hebrews 2 reminds us, with the great therefore. Chapter 1 is what is there. God and his words, son. Chapter 2, therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And repeatedly in Hebrews, it's a call to believe. And there is in chapter 11, the great book of the virtue of faith and of those who believe. We must believe. In this day where I believe especially the stumbling block is the highness of the sun and the lowness of the sun. That is, the truth that the word of God is God and the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. People can't get that word. There's nothing beyond what you see and what you get and therefore there's nothing really that man could do except in his heights of fancy to soliloquize about what is seen and heard and to philosophize and otherwise to articulate what this world is, what humans are. A word from outside, a word above, how can that be? And then when you think of it, the Christian faith, they'll go on, misses everything at this point when it imagines that this great God, whom we might all acknowledge philosophically, has to be great if he's to be God, nevertheless, has shown his greatness in a word in the flesh. How can that be? The great stumbling block of the ages is the God who is above, who comes to be with us. And as the text reminds us, purges our sins by himself. And we know what all that means in the light of the theology of the New Testament in which the Spirit-inspired, Christ-inspired authors of the New Testament talk about substitutionary atonement. And they talk about Jesus Christ bearing the wrath of God for us and Jesus Christ dying. Well, that word is ridiculed. That's the foolishness of the gospel, which is wiser than men. But it's a stumbling block and the mockery of the ages. That is Christianity. That's all God has to say. Of someone who's supposed to lead the host who dies, just like everyone else, though for a good cause, admittedly, some would say, it's the end of it. We live in this day, and for us, of course, the temptation is to go along with it, and maybe still in our creed to say, that's, uh, 
It's true because the Bible says so, but in our life, practically to live as if there is no God who's high and who's spoken a word that's still high, but so low now to be with us, we live like the devil because we find power in stuff, fulfillment in sin, and our significance in another trinity, me, myself, and I. Are you listening to that word, which is the song of yourself and the song of man? I fear that this is the temptation of the ages to listen to the word through the media, through the computers, the internet, the phones, the games. We amuse ourselves to death or we inform ourselves to death and we think we're good because we're actually gaining some knowledge. But our knowledge of the Savior is so poor, practically speaking. This we say to our shame. I say that to you and to me. This is our shame. Beloved congregation, in these series of sermons on Hebrews, in all our sermons, help us to hear the word of God. To hear what God spoke once in the fullness of the time, but he's still speaking. There's no more revelation. That's very importantly brought out here. Do you hear that, Joseph Smith? Do you hear that, Mary Baker Eddy, and all of you who would add to the word of God and think that you have extra revelations? God has spoken once in these last days. As sure as he's given one sacrifice, he's spoken once. And there needs be no more revelation. It's complete. And here... We get to hear, amazingly, because the God who spoke in his Son speaks also to us as we read the Bible. And as is suggested and implied, as he spoke and confirmed the word by those who heard him, Hebrews 2, the apostles, he still confirms the truth as it is in Jesus, the one revelation by ministers, so that faith comes by hearing. And you hear God gathering around the official proclamation of the truth as it is in Jesus. Hear him. This is the wonder of preaching. Not that it's new revelation, but it's a means of grace unto our understanding and living by that revelation of Jesus and the Word of God. And even more, there's things called sacraments of which we're going to partake presently, which some have called visible words from heaven, not further revelation, but confirming to us of little faith this wonderful truth. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son.
Hold fast that word, dearly beloved. Live by that word. Find your comfort in that word. Give glory to God of that Son word. You've gone to the Son now, I trust. Rejoice in his light. Amen.